This morning, we're going to continue on with our disrupted series. We're up to week four. We've looked at three other different characters from the Bible whose lives were disrupted and had a look at how they handle it. It's a wonderful thing to be able to look at other people going through stuff and to learn some lessons that maybe we can relate to what they're going through at the time or even avoid some of the things that we've seen that they have gone through by learning from their stories. Today, I get to talk about Joseph. A couple of weeks ago, Ross talked about the other Joseph, the father of Jesus. Today, I get to talk about the Old Testament Joseph, and I super love that because if there's a character from the Bible, I think I personally have learnt um, the most from. He's definitely one of them. Um, Over the years of knowing what starts as a simple Bible story as a kid um, has become a story that I've returned back to time and time again for all sorts of different things that I have been able to learn. And even in recent times, his story has been something that has helped me. Let me just start by saying the story is big. I'm going to try and even talk fast because there's so much that I want to be able to say, but um, I can't cover all of his life and I can't cover all of his lessons. I will just scrape the surface and I just want to share a couple. If anything, I just want to encourage you that this might point you to have a look at the story for yourself, to pray about lessons for yourself. And even at the end, I just want to give you a couple of resources um, because in this short time frame, we don't have a lot we can cover, but I really want to encourage you to go on and, and learn some more stuff. And we're talking about someone going through a pretty crappy time in life and um, being able to find some other stuff, some other resources might help you. So essentially, Joseph grew up in a complex blended family. There were four mothers in the household. He was one of 12 brothers, and he was number 11. So he had 10 older brothers. I can't even imagine that. Um, And then one younger brother. His younger brother, Benjamin, was his only full brother. The others were half-brothers. And we pick up the story from Genesis 37. That's where it starts talking about Joseph's life. And in Genesis 37.3, we can read, Now Jacob, the dad, loved Joseph more than any of his other children, Hmm. because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day he gave Joseph a special gift, a beautiful robe. No wonder verse 4 goes on to say, but his brothers hated Joseph because of their father's partiality. They couldn't say a kind word to him. Talk about a sibling rivalry that was fed by a father's favoritism. And over those 17 years, um, that that jealousy bred. Um, On top of that, there were a couple of probably prideful, maybe arrogant moments that Joseph may have kept his mouth shut, but he had a couple of dreams where the family seemed to be bowing down to him. So he shared those dreams, which was not received well by the brothers. They hated him more. So at 17 years of age, something pretty devastating happened in his life. Definitely a disruption, definitely unpredictable, and definitely something he did not deserve. The Bible recounts that the dad, Jacob, had sent the other 10 older brothers out to tend the flock, and he wanted to know how that was going, so he asked Joseph, can you go out and see how this all is and report it back to me? I'm going to read from Genesis 37, 18 to 28. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognised him in the distance and made plans to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they exclaimed. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into a deep pit. 
We can tell our father that a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But Reuben came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed his blood? Just throw him alive in this pit here. That way he will die without our having to touch him. Reuben was secretly planning to help Joseph escape, and then he would bring him back to his father. So when Joseph arrived, they pulled off his beautiful robe and threw him into the pit. This pit was normally used to store water, but it was empty at the time. Then, just as they were sitting down to eat, they noticed a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking spices, balm and myrrh from Gilead to Egypt. Judah said to the others, what can we gain by killing our brother? That would just give us a guilty conscience. Let's sell Joseph to those Ishmaelite traders. Much better idea. Let's not be responsible for his death. After all, he is our brother. And his brothers agreed. So when the traders came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver. And the Ishmaelite traders took him along to Egypt. Just like that, his life flipped upside down at the hands of his brothers who hated him. He disappears to Egypt, not to know whether he would ever see his family again, not being able to comfort his father who would have no idea what had happened. And the brothers then, we are told, took his coat, ripped it, put animal blood on it, and then returned to the dad to fake that he had died. Verse 36 of this passage says, Meanwhile in Egypt, the traders sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. What a terrifying couple of days. From his abduction, Joseph spent the next 13 years in slavery and prison. I want to give you two key events that happened in that time. And it's really important because it helps us to see those long 13 years and how hard it must have been for Joseph. It's important to see too, though, that he got into this service at the age of 17. And then in chapter 39, verse 2, there's just this little snippet that says, The Lord was with Joseph and blessed him greatly as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. He actually found favour. He actually did his job well as a servant. Potiphar actually really liked him. And, and gave him more and more opportunities to serve and more responsibility. However, Potiphar's wife took a fancy to Joseph and started making advances on him. Verse 6 says that Joseph was a handsome and well-built young man. Verse 10 says that she kept pushing, putting pressure on him daily, but it was recorded that he refused that attention and that he actually tried to stay out of her way. Let me just pause here and side note, because this story can't be brushed over. And whilst it's not a key part of what I'm talking about today, I don't want to miss this lesson. We can assume that by this time, Jacob is a well-built, good-looking, 20-something-year-old man. A Netflix series would certainly love this plot. They'd play out the drama, they would build tension, and somehow have the audience wanting this affair to unfold. Media has a lot to answer for as far as glamorising seduction and betrayal and unfaithfulness. Yet anyone who has been personally affected by that, anyone here who has been personally affected by that would tell you it is not glamour.
and then it is an awful thing. Can I urge you in Joseph's story to actually be drawn to integrity? Is it possible that we could actually glamorise morality? This guy, Joseph, this young, good-looking guy, with advances made daily toward him by this beautiful, rich woman, actually made a different decision and showed integrity. In verse 12, it says, Joseph tore himself away when she came to, to him one day and he was on his own. There was an opportunity to go along with it. He had so many reasons that he could make excuses, but it said he actually tore himself away. She was left with the shirt in her hand and he ran from the house. He just ran. He didn't stay. He didn't entertain it. He didn't flirt with the idea. He just ran. And I'm going to guess it's not because he was a pillar of self-control. That guy would have walked calmly from the room. This guy bolted. <laughs> but he made the right choice. He valued integrity and he valued God's rule in his life. A great example not to be missed. Let me say this. We cannot let tough circumstances become an excuse to compromise our integrity. Unfortunately for Joseph, this was a double-edged sword. Of course, repercussions for following through with that would have been devastating, but there was a catastrophic fallout for showing integrity as well. What happened was that Potiphar's wife used the shirt in her hand to turn against him. As the saying goes, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. She goes to her husband, she cries victim, and she has him put in jail because she wants punishment. He is furious and does the bidding. And Joseph stays there, wrongly convicted, in jail. As if years of slavery wasn't hard enough, now he's gone even further down. And again, there is this little snippet where we hear something of God in all of this. Genesis 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph there too, and he granted Joseph favour with the chief jailer. Before long, the jailer put Joseph in charge of all other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The chief jailer had no more worries after that because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him, making everything run smoothly and successfully. The Lord was still with Joseph. Here's the other interesting encounter. It just says in the Bible sometime later, but it was on a little bit because he had gotten a bit of a leadership position in prison as a prisoner. I'm not sure how that entirely even looks. But sometime later, two of Pharaoh's employees get thrown into prison as well, his cupbearer and his chief baker. One day in a display of just compassion, he looks at these two guys and sees that they look a little worried. So he asks, how are you feeling today? They go on to explain that they've each had a dream. They don't understand their dream and they want to know about it, but there's no one here in prison to interpret it. Joseph indicates a real trust and connection with God after all this time here in prison. And he says, interpreting dreams is God's business. Tell me what you saw. Joseph hears the dreams. The cupbearer is told um, in the interpretation that in three days he will be freed and reinstated to his position. Then he listens to the baker and he says, unfortunately, in three days, you're going to die. You will be executed. And if you read the scriptures, I'm not even going to say it out loud. It's horrendous what happens to him. So knowing that the cupbearer is going to go back to Pharaoh's presence, Joseph puts in a plea. Please remember me. I was 
put in here um, on false charges. I was kidnapped from my home. You need to please ask Pharaoh to have favour on me and release me. From there, the next three days play out just as the prediction had been from the dreams. The chief baker goes and is executed. The cupbearer is released and put back into Pharaoh's presence. And it says in verse 23 that he promptly forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Terrific. And there he stayed in prison for another two years. Tough gig. This guy has had a bad run. So let's recap. His dad makes him the favourite, breeds jealousy. One day his brothers decide enough is enough. They sell him into slavery and fake the death to the dad and off he goes to Egypt. But we are told God is with him. Sold as a slave into a wealthy household, gets promoted, trusted, a man of integrity. But the lady of the house makes a false claim and has him thrown in jail. But we are told God is with him. Starts prison time, gets recognition for being responsible, receives prisoner promotion. Pretty amazing. He can also interpret dreams, pitches his story to try and get out. The guy forgets him, still in jail for another two years. Looks like he can't win. Then, out of the blue, in two years' time, Joseph is having, I'm guessing, a regular day in prison. When he is called out by guards, they take him and we are told he's whisked away for a shave and a clean set of clothes, lovely, then taken to Pharaoh. Turns out Pharaoh had a couple of dreams. And in the process of trying to get his fortune tellers to predict what they all meant and realising no one had an answer, ah, something occurred to the cupbearer. Good on him after two years. Hang on a minute. There was a guy in prison two years ago and he mentions Joseph. So that's how Joseph gets his call up. He comes into the presence of Pharaoh. And I love this. Joseph says, It is beyond my power to do this, but God will tell you what it means and will set you at ease. Again, not confidence in himself, but full confidence in God and that God would use him. The dreams are recounted. Joseph interprets. The news is well received by Pharaoh. There's going to be seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine. A project manager is required and who better than this guy, Joseph. He has gone from prison to then being told, you are going to be second in charge of all of Egypt. He gets a ring of authority put on his finger. He gets riches, fancy clothes, a chariot, fame, and we are told, a wife. Well done, Joseph. There's some stuff in here about Joseph that I don't want to miss, and I just want to point out to you. But again, I just hope that it even sparks curiosity for you to go and read and look and pray and think on this further. But it's very important to notice that Joseph was 17 when he went in as a slave. He was 30 when he became second in charge of Egypt. So he spent 13 years in slavery in prison. That is a really long time. And that is why he is someone I find so great to relate to. I think that lots of us can relate to disruption or struggles or pain or trials or disappointment that is not brief, that does not last days or weeks, but that has lasted or is lasting months or years. Perhaps it is years of trying for a family, but to no avail. Perhaps it's breakdown in your family and there is divorce and separation. Perhaps it is living in an abusive 
situation. Perhaps there is divide in your neighbourhood or your community. Perhaps there is, has been a death of a loved one and you are trying to work out how to go on in life without that person. Perhaps there's a sickness or an ailment that there just doesn't seem to be reprieve from. Something that holds you back in life and you can't fix that thing. I even often hear some people say, and I've said it to myself before, that you feel like you're kind of in a life limbo. Not necessarily a time of pain, but a time of uncertainty or waiting that just seems to keep going. And you don't know when that next thing will come or when you should go after something different. Um, when can that be made happen? Will God answer my prayer on that ever? If you personally think, oh, I can't really connect so much with a time like that in my life, you should be able to now because COVID-19 has thrown us all into a long, unending time of limbo where we don't know what's around the corner, where it impacts people in all sorts of different ways. So that's why I feel like Joseph is a guy I can really relate to. He certainly went through some really tough stuff in his 13 years. And we have every reason to believe that on top of the hardship, he was carrying pain through that time. He was rejected by his family, remember. His brothers actually wanted to kill him, and that's the last time he saw them. He was separated from his parents. He never got to see them again. Or his brother Benjamin. He didn't know where they were, what was going on for them. And we don't see a lot of emotion written into the story, but if you go forward a few chapters from what I've talked about this morning, you do actually see a reuniting of he and his family. And it's after 20 plus years, more than 20 years, and it actually shows this little glimpse of the emotion and the pain that he's obviously still got. And it talks about him weeping. It talks about him going to another room and weeping so loudly that his staff can hear him. He is, has a broken heart in the midst of all this. But in his first appointment to Potiphar's household, we're told that Potiphar realised the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything that he did. And so he was promoted. That sounds like an oxymoron, a successful slave. I'm not sure how that works. He wasn't given his freedom. We might look on and think he was still the property of Potiphar. He was still a slave. His circumstances remained the same. He wasn't seeing his family. His brothers didn't come and apologise to him. Yet he served in such a way that it was noticed to the point of recognition and promotion in his position. Even then, when things turned bad again and false claims were made and he was thrown in prison, we wonder how did he deal with that? What another kick in the guts. Use your imagination about what you would write as the emotions into this because I can, I can picture a few emotions. The anger at that woman the helplessness that he had no power or voice to speak up at that point, the hopelessness and the sadness that he would feel. I don't know what his quiet moments at night before he fell asleep are like, but was he shedding tears in those moments each night? That sadness must have been real. And remember, because we, we can't help but read a story knowing, uh, just wait till chapter whichever chapter it is, I can't remember, 40. <laughs> wait, wait till then, mate, you're going to be made second in charge. He didn't know that. He didn't know if he would ever get out of jail. 
And we don't know that either about our lives. We don't know if there is going to be an end to something we are struggling with. We don't know if there will be reprieve. We don't know if that prayer will be answered ever in the way that we are hoping for. Yet something I draw from Joseph's example is that somehow he found purpose in his pain. Our home group has been watching Pete Gregg's um, course, the prayer course. We did the first one last year and this year we've just started doing his part two, which is the unanswered prayer course. And it's been excellent. And Pete says in that, psychologists tell us that it's critically important to try and find meaning and purpose if we possibly can when we are processing pain. Note that it doesn't say, figure out why the pain happened, what the reason was, and then learn from that. And I don't believe there's necessarily um, a reason for something. And what I read of God in the Bible is not a God who puts blocks in our way to see if we can make it. But I do see that there can be hope that comes out of the pain, that we can search for purpose in the midst of that. And I can see that in the reality of a bunch of people's lives around me who I've seen walk through painful stuff. Greg says, we should find a purpose in spite of the pain. Not because of the pain, but in spite of the pain. A determination to turn the pain, the disruption, the ugliness of a situation into something beautiful. To refuse to let this define or deplete me. Joseph's situation could have been different. He could have crumbled and disappeared into a life of slavery. But he chose to persevere. He actually chose as a slave, well, I'm going to serve well. If all I can do here is serve, I'm going to serve well. And then when he got demoted to prison, he said, well, if I'm in prison, I'm going to serve well in prison. And both times he was actually able to lean in to God's being with him and actually make something of that. I remember hearing a quote years ago, and it's a bit of a mantra um, for me and something my kids hear all the time. It's easier to act our way into feelings than to feel our way into actions. If we only acted on the things we felt like, how would that look? Shall I only go to work when I feel like it? Pretty sure I wouldn't have a job. Could I justify only preparing dinner of an evening for my family when I felt like it? Probably not. I have a husband who gets hangry. What if I only exercised, paid bills, helped my kids with homework, cleaned my house, took my kids to events or school? What if I did that only when I felt like it? What a schmozzle my life would be. But also, what a terrible flow and effect that would have to the people around me who depend on me. A healthy life is shaped by the ability to do, even when we don't feel. And sometimes those feelings catch back up. But the doing, even when we don't feel like it, is the ability to just have our eyes on a purpose that's beyond that moment. And that's hard and can take practice and time. But I look at Joseph's life and it's a great example of that. I see in Joseph's example that strength is for service, not for status. And it's it's in scripture and it tells us that same message. Strength is for service, not for status. So he, found, he served and he found purpose in that pain. 
And linked in with that, and I think hand in hand with that, was God being with us, with him. Knowing for us that God is with us should be a help. But that sounds sometimes just like a sentiment. God is with you. Oh, God will be with you. It says when Joseph was sold into slavery, the Lord was with Joseph and blessed him greatly. And it says Potiphar noticed. Potiphar realised the Lord was with Joseph and blessing him and giving him success. How could Potiphar know that? There wasn't any description of an aura floating around Joseph. He wasn't wearing a cross necklace. Um, He didn't have a bumper sticker with a fish on it. How did he know that God was with him? As best I can picture that, it had to have been that he served in such a way and spoke in such a way and cared and treated people in such a way that it was obvious that that's how Potiphar could see it. Again, in this prayer course um, that Pete, Pete Gregg has, that we've been going through, he talks about a study that was conducted on therapeutic benefits of companionship by the University of Wisconsin. They timed how long volunteers could sit with their feet in buckets of freezing cold water. And they actually did it with them sitting alone and with them sitting with a friend in the room. And they found that when a friend was in the room, the person could keep their feet in the bucket of freezing cold water for twice as long as when they were alone. And they concluded this, the presence of a companion doubles your resilience. What we see in Joseph is a resilient man in the companionship of God. He was not a bulletproof man He was not a man without pain or emotion. He was a man who could remain tough in circumstances and somehow thrive rather than just survive. Many years later, a man named Paul, who we heard about actually in the first week of this series, Paul was in the early church and he he had a remarkable story that was quite similar to this, that he was imprisoned unfairly And he penned some words from his chains in prison, and they are quite similar to to Joseph's attitude. He wrote it to a church in Philippi. In our Bibles, it's recorded as the book of Philippians, verse 4, 11 to 13. Here's what he said. I've learned by now to be quite content, whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much, with much as with little. I've found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. He speaks here of that strength, again coming from companionship with God. There's so many verses, there's so much theory I could um, talk about, but I also know for people, your lives are real, the stuff you're going through is real, and it's not a formula that you can plug in and that makes it okay. So I actually want to finish with a little snippet of Andy Stanley telling a story. And I didn't even want to relay this story myself because he just gets that conveyed. And he's speaking of one of his friends. I really hope something of what he says in this will be helpful for you. It's out of a part two of his series called Messy Middle. And if down the track, then I don't know if this past today comes up on our stuff. And so look it up, uh, Messy Middle. Part two, and he tells this great story. Now, 
Let me ask you this. Have you ever met someone like this? Have you ever met someone or known somebody, maybe you're related to somebody, who faced trials of many kinds, trials that, you know, they're facing the trial and you're thinking, how would I respond if I were going through that? And you watch them walk through the trial with extraordinary faith and confidence in God. They face things you hope you never have to face, but their confidence in God never wavered. Do you, do you know people like that? I, I've, I've met lots of people like that through the years. And I gotta tell you, and I think you would agree, those are the most inspiring, hope-giving, faith-giving people I've ever met, right? I am more inspired, or I should say I'm most inspired by people whose faith is tested and endures. I'm more inspired by people who get a no from God and their faith endures than I am by people who always seem to get a yes from God and they live you know, somewhat of a wrinkle-free life. I mean, isn't it true that you're more inspired by people who get the no and yet remain faithful? And the reason you're so inspired by them and the reason I'm so inspired by them is this. They leave us with confidence that there is a category of faith and there is a category of confidence in God that can endure just about anything. The people whose prayers go unanswered, but their confidence in God remains firm. I had a friend like that. His name was Reggie Campbell. Reggie Campbell passed away three months ago um, in January. Um, I've known Reggie for over 20 years. And I gotta tell you, I had never seen an individual face and embrace his own, more, his own mortality with more confidence and more courage and more faith than Reggie Campbell. I've known him so, for so long. I've been with him when he got a yes from God. I've been with him when he got a no from God. <laughs> I was with him when it seemed like maybe God changed his mind. Um, I, I stood next to him in 1998 or 1999 um, outside an ICU. His 20 his something year old son had just had a terrible car accident. And when I went in and saw Ross, Honestly, I thought to myself, we're gonna have a funeral in a few days. And I stood out outside that ICU with Reggie and I listened to him pray. And I'm telling you, knowing that in any moment he may lose his son, seeing his confidence in God, I will never ever forget that moment. And I told him that many, many times. Years later, he got a no. Um, he had a, a lung disease that caused him to slowly have decreased lung capacity. And the doctors told him there's no cure, that eventually you're just gonna lose your ability to breathe and there's really nothing we can do. And this was gonna be a multi-year process. And throughout that time, you know, Reggie and I would get together and I'll never forget one breakfast we had. I, was, I got there early, he came in pulling his, his oxygen tank, he sat down and he just looked really rough. And I, I leaned across the table, I said, Reggie, how are you doing? And he gave me this surprise look and he said something that was so profound to me in the moment I actually got my phone out and I typed it out. Here's what he said. He said, Andy, I'm fine, I'm fine, look. He said, my life has always been in God's hands. Nothing has changed. My life has always been in God's hands. Nothing has changed. My life was in God's hands when things were great. My life has been in God's hands when things were not great. My life has always been in God's hands. Andy, I'm fine, nothing has changed. 
And then he got another yes. He had the opportunity to have a lung transplant. They transplanted his lung, the surgery went well. In fact, for those of us who who knew Reggie, he actually named his lung, which was a little strange. He named his lung Larry. And every time he got together with Reggie, Reggie would tell us how Larry was doing. And things went along fine for for a while, but as you may know, when you have a lung transplant or an organ transplant of any kind, um, you have to take anti-rejection drugs so your body won't reject the organ, which wreaks havoc on your immune system. So eventually Reggie developed a very rare form of cancer. And the doctors told him, they said, if we treat the cancer, it may cause your body to reject your lung, which is exactly what happened. So in November, before the January that he eventually passed away, uh, I'd kept up with Reggie. We're all praying for Reggie, praying for a miracle. And he was wide open to a miracle, but he was wide open to his heavenly father making the decision for him. He, he was, had total confidence in God. And so he, he called me one day, he called me in November, and he said, look, Andy, he said, um, I wanna start a new men's small group He said, but here's the thing, and again, here's exactly what he said. He said, "Um, I won't be around to finish it up, but I wanna get it kicked off. So I want you to co-lead a group with me, and I know at some point in the group I'm gonna pass away, but I just wanna help get it kicked off. That was his confidence in God, and that was his approach to his own mortality. And my friends, you know this. When you see it, you never forget it. When you see it, it marks you life. One more episode with Reggie. Two days before he passed away, I visited him in his home. I've been in his home many times, and I went into his home office, and he was sitting there with his oxygen, and um, there was a white, a white marker board over in the corner of his office I'd never seen before, and across the top of the board were these words, my commitment, and there was a list of six things he had written out by hand on the marker board. Now, when I looked at the six things, I thought these were like maybe life goals that he had established a long time ago and he was maybe reviewing his life as he got to the end, but they weren't life goals. They were actually finish strong goals. He had just developed these a few weeks before to make sure this was what he focused on as he spent his last few weeks in this life. Now. The thing that was amazing to me is most people don't have a to-do list about how to live well. Reggie developed a to-do list to ensure that he died well. And I wanna share with you what was on that board. Number one, he wrote, I will walk with Jesus every day. I will walk with Jesus every day. Wait a minute, wait, Reggie, wait. The Jesus that didn't answer your prayer? The Jesus that has allowed you to go through so many trials the Jesus that has not healed you, I will walk with Jesus every day. Wow. Number two, I will be grateful and live every day to the fullest. In other words, he says, as I leave this life, I wanna make sure I am leaning in up until the very end. I will be grateful and live every day to the fullest. Number three, I will bless my family with words, pictures, and videos. He wanted to make sure that his grandchildren would know him, not just know what he'd written, but know what he looked like. He left them messages. He put together song lists and playlists. Number four, I will invest in my guys, his the small group of men that he had been developing and mentoring for many years. I will invest in my guys for their good and God's glory, not mine. His point being, even though I'm dying, Even though I'm receiving all kinds of letters and sympathy cards and all kinds of things, he says, this is not going to be about me, it's going to be about them. 
And then I wanna skip number five and come back to it. Number six on the list was this. I will let people love on me. Now I asked him about this one. I said, what, what is that about? He said, well, he said, my whole life when people wanna do things for me, I'm like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I could relate to that. Maybe you can relate to that. And he said, I decided here at the end, if people wanna bring us food, I'm gonna let them bring us food. If people wanna love on us, I'm gonna let them love on us. If people wanna love on my family, that's just my pride. I just wanna allow people to love on us. Now that was a pretty powerful list, but I tell you, number five is the one that got to me. Number five goes right to the heart of what James was saying all those years ago. Here's what Reggie wrote. I will not give up and run out the clock. I will not give up and run out the clock. This Purpose in his pain. Companionship with God. Not giving up and running out the clock. I hope that if you need comfort in something today because you're in the middle of it, or you're looking back on something and still trying to make sense of it, that something has grabbed you that can at least help or start to help. I really encourage you, if you want to have a look at something else, watch Andy Stanley's Messy Middle two-part series. Have a look at Pete Gregg's unanswered prayer course. I really hope that we won't give up and run out the clock. Let me pray. Father, um, this is hard because some of us have wounds that still haven't healed and some of us are in the midst of some stuff that's um, too hard or seeming too hard right now. I really ask that somehow you'd give us a sense of purpose where we are and that you give us a sense that's beyond a sentiment of knowing that you're with us, but that there would be a sense of really feeling that you are with us, that you would help us to see you in the people around us, that you would help us to know that each person who loves us is your love pouring down onto us. And we really just thank you for the example of Joseph, but the example of others around us who we can uh, watch and see and be spurred on by in the way that they live you out. In Jesus' name, amen.